I don't think before I turned 40, I had ever had a thousand dollars in the bank. And from 40, I found out there was over $89,000 in credit card debt in my name that existed without my knowledge. So I started my research into financial independence as a single parent making $17 an hour uh, with $89,000 in bad debt. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back. Another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, number 209 here. This is Clark here with my co-host, Jace. Jace, what's going on? Man, just uh, enjoying this beautiful fall weather. What about you? Same here. Basketball starting up, man. You oh, I love it, man. I love it. Love it. Basketball, NBA, college. You got college football going on right now. NFL in the thick of the season. You got that World Series or World Series coming up World here pretty Se- soon. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Man, I love yeah, I love the end of October. Like the highlight. Yeah, you get yeah. all the sports colliding in hockey. I'm not even. A, I'm not a huge hockey fan, but just having it all collide. We had a, what the Indian Wells last last week, or I guess two weeks ago too, which was delayed because of the, the the pandemic and stuff. I mean, it's just an amazing time of year for sports right now. I love it. When's the last time you've been to a, a hockey game in person? It's been a while for me. I went to a game in Dallas, actually, the Dallas Stars, uh, not last year, but actually right as the pandemic kind of broke. So that was March of 2020, I went to a Dallas Stars game. So not, right. not too long right. ago. I need to go. I need to go again. I'm in New York and there's two professional hockey teams and I haven't been to a, a team since I've lived or a game since I've lived here. So it's time to go back. I said that to my wife. I'm like, hey, we should go to a hockey game. It's been a while. Yeah, I, I enjoy them live for sure. I don't watch them a lot on TV except for maybe Stanley Cup playoffs, but I, I love watching it live. Yeah. All right. I'm going to check it out. I just remember not being able to see the puck because I was sitting in the in the high end nosebleeds. Yeah, man. You got to try being so cheap, dude. On. You got to buy like the $20 <laughs> tickets instead of $5 tickets, man. <laughs> yeah, they're not that expensive. That is true. The hockey tickets. Live a little, bro. Anyway, fun stuff. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> so we got a question, Jace, this week from Randy. And let me just read his question. He says, I enjoy your podcast. What do successful millionaires do for health insurance between quitting full-time work or after quitting full-time work, I think he means, and and 65, right? When they apply for Medicare or when they're off their private insurance plan is the only option to get health insurance from the marketplace. If your net worth and income is high, you, you face really high fees, he says. He says, as a result, I am looking at budgeting $30,000 a year for insurance and my deductible once I leave work full-time where insurance is available. I am healthy, but I always budget for the unexpected. So, Jace, is, is we've kind of had a few of these conversations with millionaires and what they do, those that have retired early, those that are in the fire community, what they do for insurance. But what's your take? What have we seen as we've interviewed these millionaires about what people do when they lose their insurance? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think it is kind of one of those elephants in the room, and everyone's got to address it for the most part that's transitioning into that next phase of life before they get on, on Medicare. I'm discussing this with my parents right now. I'm discussing it with coworkers discussing it with various people in my life that are kind of in that boat. And there's all sorts of approaches. One, you have the exchange. And depending on what your financial situation is, like he meant, Randy mentions, I mean, it could be extremely expensive. But I I think sometimes we get so caught up in how expensive it is. But 
forget what we're actually paying for, right? We're paying for the transfer of risk as it relates to our health. So you think, for example, if somebody were to have a catastrophic accident or have some sort of surgery that necessitated, you know, heart surgery or cancer treatments or something, I mean, those bills can run, you know, several hundred thousand dollars, if not into the seven figures. So paying 20 to 30, transferring that potential risk of a million or plus down the road, you know, it it may seem expensive on paper, but to some degree that's you remember what you're what you're buying, right? So I think there's the exchange, there's these Christian-based um, health sharing plans. I know several people in my network uh, that utilize those, that mainly mostly entrepreneurs that utilize those. You know, there's also in some states, and I don't know about every state, but at least in Texas, if you do have an entity business of sorts of anything, really, you got to have an entity, uh, you can still get some plans through Blue Cross even. Uh, so they'll, they won't give it to you as an individual, but they'll give it to the business. So even if she's got an LLC with, you know, a partnership with you and your wife or somebody, you know, partnership with a, a friend or something, it's possible that you can get on, on, uh, you know, a, a health plan. Um, and there's some of these other startups that have popped up as well. And I'm not as well versed, you know, I think you've got one there, Clark in New York, Oscar that, that started there and, and got pretty popular and whatnot. But I think those are kind of the main yeah, things. Oscar, I actually did when I left my previous job. Sorry to interrupt you. It's, it was about $500 a month is at the time. I don't know what it is now, but it was about 500 bucks a month just for my wife and I, no kids. And that was with a high deductible plan. I think it was maybe ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000. So Still not cheap for someone that fortunately don't have many health problems right now. Yeah, I mean it is it is a an extreme expense in our country. I think we're definitely living longer, unhealthier lives, and it's a big problem. I mean, we've got all sorts of problems related around health insurance and you know government plans and Medicaid, and I mean there's just we could have discussions about this stuff forever. So. I, you know, I think there's a lot of solutions out there. I think you just need to spend the time to to kind of look through and see what makes sense for you. You know, I would say just don't go in, in expecting that you're going to buy cheap insurance. You're, you're buying the transfer of risk. And some of those bills can, if something happened, whether it was cancer or, you know, needing heart surgery or something, I mean, those things will go quick. You know, you spend a lot of money real fast. Yeah, agreed. And, and, and I think you hit on most of it. I mean, I think Randy, the reality is that most people that do this are just paying for the insurance. Um, they're just going out to the private marketplace because there's just not a really, really good second or third option. The only other ones that I kind of thought of, as Jace was talking about, besides the Christian cost-sharing plan uh, that we've heard, is people that travel abroad will try to get an insurance plan abroad that's a lot cheaper. Yep. And then we've also heard of somebody getting part-time work. So they'll go back to work as like a substitute teacher or they'll work for the government very part-time, something that qualifies and gets them benefits and get the insurance that way. So that's another option that we've heard. But an interesting take and agreed with Jace, there's not really a good option right now. But anyway, so thanks for writing in, Randy. If you'd like to ask a question, you can either ask it over email or voice. Head to our website, millionairesunveiled.com. Hit Ask a Millionaire and we'll review that and answer those on the show. You can also submit a question on audio. We have a system called SpeakPipe, and we'd love to play that. So uh, feel free to keep asking those questions. And, of course, we'll ask the millionaires, too, as in our upcoming interviews. So as a quick recap from last week, we had Al. He's a part-time financial advisor. 
He has a net worth of five million, two and a half million invested in Tesla. So if you don't listen to anything else in this episode, go listen from about the eleven minute mark to the seventeen mark. That's really interesting and, and where he talks about his experience with Tesla. So fun interview with him. During COVID, he dropped from one point six million to nine hundred thousand in just a few months. So he's down to earth, humble and and fun interview. With Al. This week we have Dion. He has a net worth of about 1.25 million, all of it in real estate. So we haven't had one of these in a while where a person is totally in real estate. He has about 80,000 in passive income, works for a nonprofit that helps place truck drivers, and is just another example of a great American success story. So again, that's with Dion today. Also, just real quick, in the show notes of today's episode and in the last couple of weeks, we have a brief listener survey that we're asking people to do. So it's literally just eight questions. It'll take you about 30 seconds to a minute to complete. It's totally anonymous. We're just trying to understand who our listener is, who our demographics are. So Please just take 30 seconds to a minute to answer that. It'll help us. And, and thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. And without any further today, let's jump right into today's episode. Dion, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what tripped you now? Sure. I think I have the, the absolutely normal story of, of every millionaire you talk to. <laughs> Started out extremely poor. My parents would basically have us move into houses and we would fix them up, fix the doors and windows and wait for the owners to show up and ask us who we were. And whenever they showed up, we would move to the next house. I uh, joined the Marine Corps because that life would be a little bit easier. They actually had benefits and housing. And after Desert Storm, the Marine Corps downsized. So I lost that source of income. I uh, was a truck driver for a while. I was a police officer when the recession hit in 2008. And if, I don't know if you know this or not, but when recessions hit, police departments don't have any money. So it's like there's no more crime anymore. So we don't need cops. And they lay a bunch of them off. So I got laid off at the recession, got tired of sources of income getting taken away from me. So I started looking into ways to make money that aren't dependent on a W-2 job. Awesome. And what is your net worth today? Started this year a little over a million as far as net worth goes. And the way I look at it is if you sold off all your assets and you walked away with no debt, what would you have in your pocket? That's kind of where I'm coming up with my net worth value. And uh, it's hitting uh, 1250000 just a little over that. Awesome. Congrats. And how is that broken up? <laughs> my investing strategy is is very targeted. Um, I find that my strategy works really well, really well for me because I'm super lazy and I don't have the mental bandwidth to learn uh, multiple strategies. I couldn't take the time to learn stocks and rentals and running a business or anything like that. So my, my investing is all done through investing in small multifamily rentals. So pretty much 100% of my net worth is in rental um, equity and cash. So 100% real estate and then business or just 100% real estate is basically the way you look at that? 100% of my net worth is in real estate. I am part owner of a CDL school, but I don't really count that as part of my net worth because I couldn't control if there was a sale. Uh, the rentals, the properties, they're all in my name. I'm a sole proprietorship. And so that is what I consider to be my actual net worth. Interesting. And do you have a primary residence or do you rent? So have you ever heard of house hacking? Yep, I have. Okay, that's actually the way that I built my wealth. And, and I'm still living in one of my units. Uh, I purchased a fourplex at the beginning of the year. And I live in one of the units. And let me see that place. Cash flows positively about $1,700 a month with me living in one of the units. So once I move out, it'll make about $3,000 a month. Well, that's pretty phenomenal. So I want to get into the story a little bit because getting to 14 rentals and, and obviously you've got a significant portion of your net worth in that. How did that all start? 
So, like I said, right after the recession, I was tired of my income being taken away. And my brother, had he had retired. He has 10 paid off rentals. And he has a strategy that really wouldn't work for me. He he was running his own business and had time. And he's he's like a craftsman with all these skills. He would buy mobile homes on acreage kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then he would fix them up to where it looks like a really nice home. I don't have the time to fix them up. I, I couldn't find the deals. I, so buying and fixing rentals isn't something that I could do. But I thought, and I was living in a house, I'm a single parent with three kids. I, I wasn't sure if I could handle even being a landlord, let alone using the strategy that he did. So my first step was moving into an apartment and I rented out the house. And the first tenant went about as bad as you could possibly imagine. I, I knew nothing. I hadn't done any research. I just, I knew that people rented houses and I rented to a friend who with a handshake so no lease he was a single parent uh, so i thought i kind of understood his position but because he was a single parent when late when rent got late i let it slide because i understood his position i was a single parent too but late became later which became never and when i finally went to the house to find out you know have a face-to-face meeting i found out he had moved out of the house and rented it to someone else and he was collecting the rent and keeping it so my first experience with rentals made me basically want to quit. I tried to give the house away. Literally in 2010 and 11, luckily the market was at the bottom and I was underwater on the mortgage. So I couldn't even give the house away. I found podcasts. I found a community called Bigger Pockets. Podcasts like the you know people like you that are interviewing people who've done what I want to do. And it's amazing what a little bit of knowledge will do for you. I, I heard about house hacking. I didn't know that it was a thing. And so the idea with house hacking is to Reduce or eliminate your housing expense, which is usually people's biggest expense. Most people focus on the latte factor, you know, save $5 a day by cutting out coffee. And in 40 years, you'll have $860,000. Instead, if you can figure out a way to not have housing costs, you know, my, I was paying $1,500 a month for the, the apartment I was living in while I was trying to rent out the house. I purchased a duplex. I moved into one side and rented out the other. The duplex is in my area. I'm in Washington state. The duplex is cost less than single family houses do. So renting out the other side of the duplex reduced my housing costs down to 1300 or from $1,500 down to $300, basically giving me a $1,200 a month increase to my savings rate. And with house hacking, you can go up to four units. So a duplex, triplex, or quad, you get the same lending as you do with a single family house. You get 30 year fixed rate, low interest rates. Uh, my first one was 5% down. So you don't have to save you know, 50000 or $100,000, and it was less than $20,000 to get into my first duplex and start saving for the next one. A year or two later, you know, buy another one, and it's a, it's a repeatable strategy. And at about seven units, so the single-family house and three duplexes, I had completely replaced my cost of living. You know, a lot of people want to replace their their income, which isn't what you need to do. With financial freedom, the number that matters is the amount you spend every month because – if you can replace that, you can retire at any age. You don't need to save for retirement. You don't need to make as much money because you're not being taxed on it. There's, you know, there's tax benefits to rental profit that a W-2 income just doesn't have. You know, my, my salary at the truck driving school that I was working at, uh, is at, at its highest, the salary was $75,000. My rental income every year is about 84,000. Those two numbers don't sound too, that's the profit. They don't sound too different. You know, $75,000 W-2 income or $84,000 rental profit until you factor in taxes. A W-2 salary of 75000 is going to be taxed at 
you know, 24 to 30% or $84,000 in rental profit is going to be taxed at zero because you have depreciation and write-offs. And I can use a 1031 exchange to buy bigger properties. I can, and with the stepped up tax system, my kids won't even pay taxes on the income that I'm making with this portfolio. I want to, I want to rewind just a little bit. You mentioned what you did in your former life and how you had that monumental shift and getting your income taken away and whatnot. Did you invest at all before this all started, whether it be in, you know, the market or anything? Did you put any money away or we just basically live in paycheck to paycheck? I was really, really paycheck to paycheck. I had a really, I'll try to keep the, uh, this conversation on light topics, but I had a really bad uh, marriage separation. I became a single parent with three kids, thought we were pretty much debt free. Uh, we did li- live paycheck to paycheck, but we didn't have any debt that I knew of. I found out there was over $89,000 in credit card debt in my name that existed without my knowledge. And in Washington state, when you get divorced, it's a community property state. So it doesn't matter. Both one or both names are on all debt. And after the divorce, she filed for bankruptcy. So all of that debt became solely my debt. So I started my research into financial independence as a single parent making $17 an hour uh, with $89,000 in bad debt. If I talk to somebody and they tell me that there's no way they can pull off, you know, reaching that millionaire status or finding financial independence, I really struggle to think of a way or a position that someone can be in where they can't because it just takes time, you know, figuring out a way to spend less than you're making and invest the difference because especially with rental properties or, or a dividend paying portfolio, most people focus on cash flow when they're first starting to invest. And if you can figure out a way to get money to come in to replace your expenses, that's financial freedom. But what really makes you wealthy is appreciation and principal pay down. You know, this year I I haven't made $250,000, but my net worth increased by over that by the properties that I own going up in value because of the housing market. You know, with this year, a lot of people are learning that there is not one market. There's over 400 and major cities are seeing prices soften or go down because people want to avoid crowds because of a virus or because of riots. And they're, you know, working from home is more of an option, but all of those people are moving out of the cities into the rural areas. So my properties are all outside of major cities where people are now moving to, and those prices have gone up uh, a significant amount, adding to my, my net worth without me having to do anything. Dion, I, I want to just go back here, big picture, and then we'll dive into this. Because at the beginning, we talked about, you know, you mentioned growing up super poor and being able to grow passive income and having the ability to retire at any point when you replace your monthly or annual expenses, right? When did you come to that realization? And how did you come to that realization? I know you just talked a little bit about the job loss and, and getting away from that W-2 income. But I just want you to expand on that a little bit because I think your story is interesting here and it, it really fits in. A big part of the decision happened after the recession, you know, watching a lot of people who thought their their W-2 income was the safest way to have a, a safe, secure future. And even, you know, in law enforcement, most people that work in law enforcement are trapped. We're in this little box of I was a cop last year, so next year I have to be a police officer. There's no way around this. And when the recession hit, my department shrunk. And in good times, it takes almost a year to laterally transfer from one department to another. But in bad times, nobody's hiring. So it's not even an option. And luckily, I had a commercial driver's license in my back pocket. And you know, with the driver shortage, you can find work anywhere. But 
my brain understood that W-2 income is not the path to wealth. Even people making $150,000, $200,000 a year from their W-2 job are often living broke because they, they have that life creep. They, they get the bigger car, the, the bigger house, the, the other, the extra house. And when I found the podcasts, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with bigger pockets. They're probably one of, they're probably the largest real estate community online. It, it's getting the chance to listen to somebody in a podcast like this or in, in, a, in an interview like this and listen to different strategies. I might, you know, somebody might buy laundromats. Somebody else might buy apartment complexes. Somebody else might invest strictly in the stock market or in cryptocurrency. But even if the strategies are completely different than what I want to do, the core elements are the same. You need to put your money to work so that your time isn't the thing that's earning you money. Kind of the Warren Buffett quote that everybody goes to of, if you don't find a way to work while you're asleep, you'll work until you die. And there's a bunch of different paths that people can take. And I, I really picked mine. And it comes back to what I said earlier. I picked my path because I'm really lazy. I don't have the, I can't do real estate flipping because that that's episodical. It's like having another job. If you, as long as you're flipping, you're making money. As soon as you stop, the money stops coming in. Wholesaling is the same way. Uh, the Burr method of, you know, buying a house, rehabbing it, renting it out, refinancing it, repeating. These are all things that take too much effort. When I found the idea of house hacking and, and decreasing your expenses so much that it becomes easy to save, you know, at seven units, I was financially free. And at 14 now, every couple of years, I'll probably just add another small multifamily. Uh, my kids are going to inherit several million dollars worth of real estate without me doing anything different. I, I, I'm not working a job where I make $500,000 a year. I'm, I'm working a job and I've probably confused the owners of the company that gave me part ownership because there were several times in the first few years as the company was growing so fast that they kept offering me wage increases. And having grown up as poor as I did, I saw several things. You know, when I was a teenager, I worked in a store before going into the Marine Corps. The manager of the store was let go because his salary was too high so that the person below that person would get a promotion the store would save money. And so in my mind, if I have a W-2 job where I let the wage grow too much, if something happened like this year with COVID, the, the most companies are making less money. If I had let my wage go up, I would have been the first thing eliminated from the company. I was able to do that because my source of income, I mean, while W-2 income is good, my income was coming from rentals. So I've been slowly building the portfolio. I didn't have 14, you know, a couple of years ago, I had seven. And so I, but I know that that income will be there. So every time that the owners came to me and said, Hey, would you like to make more money? Would you like to bump your raise? I've been able to turn it down and say, no, let's add a 401k system, which they were already in the process of doing. And they had better benefits for staff. So we reduced turnover. And there's all these things that the company can grow with that doesn't involve me just making more money. So then you start to realize this and what were the first steps you took? You start looking for a house or, you, I mean, obviously you started researching how you came across bigger pockets you mentioned. And then how did you find the first home or rental property to buy? So I did start looking for single family houses. My brain understood people rent houses, but the housing market had started to go up and single family houses cost so much in this state that it's, re I've, I've never seen one that you can purchase and cash flow from. And you don't need to cash flow a lot when you buy a rental property, but if you don't cash flow something, it's going to slow down the next purchase a lot. And then I found bigger pockets and ha heard about house hacking. And when I looked up duplexes, you know, so two units on one property, 
in my market, they actually cost less than a single family house. So it was actually easier to buy a duplex and live in one side and have somebody rent out the other than it would have been to buy a single family house. And I didn't know how to find them. So I reached out to real estate agents and a lot of real estate agents will want to lock a person down and say, sign this letter saying you're only going to work with me. And I didn't like that because I didn't know the industry really well. And I wanted to shop around. So kind of kind of like when you hire a contractor, you don't just call one and say, hey, I'm only going to work with you. What's your price? You call three contractors and you get estimates and then you go with the best estimate that has good reviews. I talked to at least three real estate agents. I gave them the same search criteria. All of my purchases are right off the MLS. There's a book called One Rental at a Time. And uh, uh, it has a like literally spells out the steps to getting one rental at a time. But it works for a small multifamily, too, or even apartment complexes. So looking at the duplexes, I, I gave all three real estate agents the exact same criteria. I mean, word for word, verbatim, just copy and paste it in an email. And somehow all three of them find completely different deals on the MLS in the same footprint of real estate. So <laughs> somebody's searching out or starting, I would, I would recommend going to a few agents, giving them your search criteria, and then finding out which ones actually find what you're looking for. So big picture here on your portfolio, you own now 14 different units, right? How many properties is that? How many different buildings, I guess, is the question. That is six properties. And so it's a single family house, three duplexes. I bought a fourplex the end of last year. And then I just closed on a, I call it a triplex, but really it's a house and a duplex on one lot. And you've, you've house hacked or lived in all of them and just moved from one to the other? No, no. It helped, but you don't have to do that every time. And I didn't have to do that every time. I lived in the house when I, you know, that was my uh, house with the white picket fence kind of thing before I got into rentals. Uh, and I house hacked into one duplex, which reduced my housing costs by, like I said, $1,200 a month. And then I'm house hacking the fourplex. So this is three properties out of six that I've lived in. The other three I've purchased as investment properties, which takes a little bit more saving. You know, they want 25% down. And the interest rate is about a half a percent higher if you're not going to live there. So, Dan, let's get into one of these deals, maybe the more recent one you did. How how did you find it? What kind of financing did you obtain for it? And and maybe give us a little, shed a little light on the numbers in terms of your cash flow and, and mortgage and all that kind of stuff and repairs and whatnot. Sure. I'll, I'll go over the fourplex because it's the one that I did and is completed and I have several months to understand the internal rate of return. Whereas the most recent one, I, I don't actually know the numbers confidently yet. I know it'll be better than a 10% return, which I've gotten on every rental so far. But the fourplex was listed at 595000 so almost 600000 which is basically 150000 a unit, which was my target when I was looking for properties the last couple of years. I offered six hundred because it's a hot market. I made the offer within 20 minutes of the listing being posted. Luckily, the listing agent Either this was too much work or too far away or whatever, but it was listed very poorly. It had one image from the back. It just showed a big square building. And in Washington, there are a lot of fourplexes that are just big square buildings. And my criteria that helps me limit turnover is I want side-by-side units with garages, at least two bedrooms with a washer and dryer in each unit because tenants don't like to use a laundromat or shared laundry. And doing all of this since my first negative experience. I've only had one turnover ever, and that was because she inherited a house. But I Google earthed this fourplex when I saw the numbers worked, because that's just the first step is seeing if the math is is what you want. 
when I looked at Google Earth, I saw that place from the front and it found out it's actually four side by side units. It's basically two duplexes connected together in the middle. So there's no tenants above or below another. There's a garage for each unit. Uh, it was, it's basically the perfect deal and worth $750,000 in our market. Uh, and I, so I would have gone higher had <clears throat> I probably might have used an escalation clause if somebody else made one more offer. But my offer was accepted at 600. And then this is something that I do with every property that I've purchased. I, I had a professional inspection done because I'm not a contractor. I don't know much about, I'm not very handy. I have two handymen that do the work. I'll go and help and, and try to learn, but it's not my skill set. I know how to stay in my lane. But the really powerful thing with a, a professional home inspection is that the home inspector is trying to protect themselves. So when they point out problems in a, in a property, they, they have very eloquent language that makes it sound like a house built last year is falling down. It's on its last leg. Nothing's going to, the place is going to burn down tomorrow. And from that inspection, I took a couple of pages with the images and the professional write-up making it sound like it needs, like, you know, the decks were explained like they were death traps, which meant there were about six rotten boards that needed replaced and it needed to be painted with non-skid paint, non-skid paint. So the way I said it, it's an afternoon job. The way the inspector worded it, you need four new decks. And I pointed out that the place needed about $30,000 worth of work using the pages from the inspection. I asked for $20,000 off the price. They came back with $10,000 off the price, which was my hope because most people, even though they haven't read the book, split the difference. They end up splitting the difference. And so I purchased it for $590,000. So a $1,000 inspection made me $10,000 because I would have bought it at $600,000. Moving from the duplex into the fourplex, the cash flow is $1,700 more than the mortgage. So I, I called it cash flow of $1,700 a month, but really I still have to set aside for repairs and vacancy. And that's about, um, I'm doing, you know, a hundred dollars a unit. So it's $400 getting a set aside. So there's profit of $1,300 a month there. But the real benefit to repeating the process of house hacking was now I got to rent out the unit in the duplex that I was living in. So instead of paying 300 there, that duplex is now cash flowing over $800 a month after everything, after repairs and maintenance. So 800 from the duplex, pure profit of 1300 from the fourplex. I'm now making over $2,000 a month increased income just because I was willing to move from one rental to another. Oftentimes when we talk to these millionaires, we ask about happiness what it means to them, and whether the money or their journey has brought them more happiness. We also ask about mindset, personal confidence, stress, and the importance of strong, positive relationships. So ask yourself, what interferes with your happiness and what prevents you from reaching your goals? Perhaps it's a lack of vision or personal drive. Maybe it's that you're too stressed in general or that you're dealing with anxiety, depression, a tough relationship, or family conflicts. Well, today we'd like to thank our sponsor, BetterHelp, that's help, H-E-L-P. BetterHelp is a crisis line, not meant for self-help, but rather a professional counseling company done securely online. You get paired with a licensed professional counselor who specializes in assisting with depression, stress, anxiety, sleeping, trauma, family conflicts, grief, and more. It's more affordable than traditional counseling, and it's as easy as a phone call or online meeting. We want you to start living a happier life today. So if there's something you're struggling with or you just need a listening ear, check out betterhelp.com slash unveiled. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling. So join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health and head to betterhelp 
com slash unveiled. And without any further delay, let's get right back into the show. So, Dion, where do you go from here? Are you trying to get a certain number of doors or a certain number of ba- passive income? A lot of people have a uh, vision board where they put on the board what they want. Mine was, uh, you know, folded up card in my wallet that said $5,000 a month in passive income, which I wanted within a certain number of years. And, I, and so I hit that a while ago. That was my, my biggest first goal that I wanted. That way, even if source of income was completely taken away, I would never have to work again for the rest of my life. I could choose to. You know, uh, it, you're familiar with the FIRE community? I am. So a lot of people focus on that retire early part. And that, to me, doesn't really matter. It's the financial independence that really mattered to me. With the rentals, I mean, I, I'll quote the book again, one rental at a time. I'll just keep doing it every couple of years. Every time I have the money saved for the next down payment, I'll continue to add another one. I don't have a cash flow goal. I don't have a number of units goal. I just want to make sure they all meet my criteria. The real benefit to financial freedom for me was working at the truck driving school. Uh, There's a driver shortage. Companies are hiring almost anybody. COVID hits. Companies need more people. But a few years ago, before this pandemic, I was able to found a nonprofit. And what my nonprofit does is it focuses on job placement assistance. So in Washington state, there's a little over 6,000 registered transportation companies. And with the driver shortage, they're all looking for drivers. And anytime they have a job opening, people only think of the drivers. They forget that every single trucking company has an office and a warehouse, HR, IT, web design, legal teams. I mean, companies like UPS actually staff nurses and medical staff at their facilities. So what my nonprofit does, it's called TPS, Transportation Placement Services. You can find us at hiddenjobs.org. What we do is for free. It's a 501c3 company, so we don't charge the people a penny. We don't charge the employers a penny. We find people jobs in transportation. So anybody in the Northwest or literally anywhere, because our companies we work with, like Old Dominion or Redaway or McLean or in all 50 states, they can contact us. And for free, we will show them which companies are hiring in their area, how to apply, what, what they really like to see on a transportation resume. And the weird side benefit of this nonprofit, and this is a, a little bit into the weeds, so I'll keep it short. But in transportation, generally what a person has to do to become a truck driver is they get a CDL and they drive over the road for a company like Swift or CR England and they're gone all the time and they don't see their families much and they make, you know, thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year for two years. Then they have experience and then they get a really good local driving job with Old Dominion, Oak Harbor, McLean, Redaway, you know, a company that pays eighty dollars to $90,000 a year and they get to sleep in their own bed every night. What our nonprofit did is it developed relationships between the truck driving school and local employers. So our graduates at the CDL school, commercial driver school, don't have to go over the road. They actually graduate and go right to work for local companies without needing that two years of experience. So what's going to happen for me is probably work until I die, not because I have to, but because I literally get to play in a truck like it's a like it's a go-kart every day, teach people how to drive trucks, help them find a driving job. I get to have, run a nonprofit that helps people find work and I get the the, the physical happiness that comes from not having to charge them for it. And then I have rental properties that I take really good care of. I charge below market rents. I make sure everything is fixed. So people who want to live in a house but don't want to own because they don't have the means to repair, you know, replace a roof or fix a water heater or fix a foundation problem can rent from me and actually have a good place to live. And as a side benefit, something that the owner of the truck driving school, I call him the other owner, but he's the actual owner. I just have the part that they gave me. He said this when I first met him. He said, money is a byproduct 
that you get by doing something well. And what I seem to do well is help people. And the more people I help, weirdly, the better my life seems to get. Yeah, I mean, really good stuff. Thanks for sharing. And I think your perspective on on passive income and financial security is unique, right? I mean, it's something that's it's growing, right? You continue to hear the fire movement, as you mentioned, that continues to to be a thing. And, and like you said, it, it's probably more on the financial independence than the retire early piece. But I think that's something that's starting to become a little bit more popular, right? Because there's different ways and different sources that people can make income. Yeah. And I mean, generations have to change. If, if your people are familiar with rich dad, poor dad, you know, it sets the mindset of understanding how money works. And, and some of the concepts that are talked about in that book, they're very simple to understand. But to really explain them to somebody else is, is above my head. A hundred years ago, people could have a farm. You, you're, you raised kids to replace you on the farm. And then 70 years ago, they had to draw people off the farm with pensions to get them to come and work at a factory. And then factories realized pensions weren't sustainable. And the, and the life expectancy now is, is above 70. And so they come up with the 401k, which is a, a retirement program that you put into, and then you get to take money out later. And people are finding out that that's often not enough. And that's why there's so many people mm-hmm. at food places or working at Walmart as a greeter that, you know, they have to work into their 70s and 80s. And so the more people that find out that your financial future is your responsibility, and you need to find assets that will pay you when you're not working for it, whether it's stocks a business that someone else runs that you own or rentals or something that you have control of. I think that's the next phase for the, the, you know, the generation has to learn how to fend for itself. Right. So Dion on you, how much do you spend a year annually? Now that my kids are older and moved out, I would think my annual expenses are somewhere between 30, well, they're probably less than 30,000. I'm not frugal. I go out to eat all the time. It's probably cheaper for me to eat out than it is to cook and shop and prepare at home. Uh, before COVID, I went to the movies every week to see something. I have a, you know, I drive a big F-250. Uh, I spend a month a year in Thailand or Colombia, so I take travel I mean, when you were allowed to travel. Um, but I specifically picked countries for traveling where the dollar is strong. So those months where I spend in, Th- in Thailand or Colombia, when I came home, I had more money than when I left, even though while there, I did everything I could think of from swimming with elephants or playing with tigers or ziplining or scuba diving, everything that you could spend money on and still come home with more money than I left with. Yeah. So, so let's just call it 30,000. And then how much do you make from all these, these 14 different units? The rental profit after all expenses and setting aside and everything is 84,000 a year. Okay. And then you just pour the difference. Let's call it 50, 54, right? You just pour the difference into buying uh, more properties and continuing to grow those. 100% 100% of W-2 income, which like I said, my salary is 75000 and in good years, I'll, I'll get bonuses. Um, in years like this, I don't expect bonuses. <laughs> I, you know, yeah. The lights are on, so I'm happy. Uh, so you've got, you've got your expenses covered almost 3x, right? You're, you're cash flowing about 84000 84, You said your expenses are thirty, so 30, 60, 90, about 3x, you can cover your expenses. So how come still work at all? Is it just you, you, you enjoy it? I'm, I'm not talking about the rental properties, I guess, on the small business side. Do you ever think about walking away from that? If I, so that's the thing. If I didn't love what we do, absolutely. So anybody that's in my position that doesn't like their job, they would have quit years ago. I will keep working because I really enjoy what we do. I mean, I don't know if you heard the, the tone of my voice or the excitement that it sounded when I got to explain that I get to play in a truck like it's a semi and help people find jobs and, 
I mean, that's why I work. It's just because I love the job. If I didn't love the job, I would be, I would be gone already. And yeah, yeah. I don't see that in my yeah. future. No, no, fair enough. And, and so what motivates you now, Dion? And, and how, I'm, I'm curious how that shifted over the years because you, you grew up really poor, you mentioned, and you can, you, you're welcome to get into that a little bit. I think it'd be interesting, but how has your motivation and really what, you know, what deeply motivates you to succeed? You said growing up, I think when we were talking before the show that it was that you didn't want to live like that in the future. You wanted to get out of that situation. Uh, is that accurate? And maybe how has that motivation shifted throughout the years? I think the motivation is the laziness. Having to work. If I, if I hated my job and I had to work, that would be terrifying. And I think a lot of people are stuck in that rut. They, they have a job they don't like, but they don't have the assets so they could just walk away from it. But the, the one thing that I think is I don't know that I've mentally shifted away from that, that childhood of being really poor. We lived in houses and then whenever the owners would show up, we would move to the next one. So we weren't what I would call squatters because squatters stay until they're evicted. We would say, you know, hi to the new owner or the owner and then leave. But I would go to friends' houses as a kid and listen to them talk. I would hear their parents talk. And my friends always seemed unbelievably rich to me because they paid rent. Their parents talked about this thing called rent. And in L.A. in the 80s, you know, it was $1,000, $1,500 for a house. I couldn't believe how rich my friends were because they were paying rent. So now as a grown-up with rental properties, I live in one of my units for free. And I look at all of my tenants, every single one, mentally, to me, they're still richer than I am. Because somehow they can afford to pay rent. And in my mind, I would, I would never do that again. I, I don't even want to pay a mortgage. I don't want to pay rent. If I, if I'm going to pay a mortgage, it's going to be because, because an asset is paying for it. So now that I have the rentals with the rental income, if I ever go out and buy my forever home or a, a ranch or a farm or something and live on it, that payment is not going to come from W2 work that I do. That payment would come from assets. And, and I think that's where the motivation comes from is it's growing the assets so that I don't ever have to work again. But then life isn't always about money. A lot of times life needs to be about what makes you happy. And what really is making me happy is trying to find a way to teach as many people as possible what I've figured out. It's like I've got this simple math equation that within 10 years, anybody can never have to work again in their life. You move into a duplex to eliminate your housing costs. Two years later, you buy another one. Two years later, and in 10 years, you have five cash flowing properties and you live in one for free. So if you have free housing, your living expenses aren't that much. And so I've been on interviews like this. I really appreciate you guys inviting me on here. If you just, if people go to YouTube and, and just search Dion McNeely in YouTube, you'll hear my interviews. I explain my strategies as, as simple as I can. Um, you can find me on Facebook. I, I'll take usually one or two hour phone calls with people trying to figure out how to get into rentals. I have no desire to invest in crypto. So don't reach out to me if that's the goal, but that's what motivates me seeing how many people I can help. Yeah, it's it's really commendable. And so, Dion, as you talk about your past, if it's not, if this isn't something in a strategy and, and financial literacy, I guess you could call it, right, that you learned growing up, how did you learn it? Was it after you joined the Marines, or where did it where did it come from? It was it was years after that. My my parents had no financial literacy, and I, I'm sure your listeners have have read the Rich Dad Poor Dad stories and have heard how. They're not allowed to teach finances in schools because, you know, a hundred years ago, the Fords and the Rockefellers and all these rich people said, we will build schools as long as you don't te 
teach finances because we need workers for our factories. Literally, we're growing up in a generation that's going to be the first one that has the chance to learn about financial independence, financial freedom, or how money even works. Because the power of YouTube University is unbelievable. Uh, to just go and listen to a 10-minute channel you know, or, or video that explains something like house hacking. Or I would definitely look up Minority Mindset. Jaspreet Singh is is a genius when it comes to money and the way he puts it in simple terms. I would listen to that. Then there's Meet Kevin, Graham Stephan, Bigger Pockets, One Rental at a Time, Afford Anything. There's communities like this where there's literally, there's got to be more than thousands, but tens of thousands of people like me trying to share what they've figured out. It's not like there's a college course that can be taught on how to do finances because how many college professors would still be college professors if they figured out how to never need to work. There's not enough for people to learn that way. But this information is, is more and more available online. And, and it's, you know, it's on your phone, it's yeah. on your tablet, it's on your computer at work. I mean, anybody who isn't on the path to financial freedom is pretty much doing it by choice because they're not taking the time to figure out how easy it is to do. Fair, because the resources are so, so available, you're saying now, right? Uh, correct, yep. Yeah. So let me just close here, Dion, with some rapid fire questions, and then we'll go into some last uh, mistakes and advice. So how old were you when you became a millionaire? 48. 48. Okay. And we, and we talked about your household spending of about 30000 30000 annually. What's been your range of, of household income since you've been working? Uh, before 40, I don't think I ever had $1,000 in the bank. Most of my income was as a police officer, I was making 48000 As a truck driver, I was making around 40 because I didn't know the better driving jobs existed. As at running the CDL school, my salary has gone up to 75. So, um, I mean, yeah, in good years, I can make more than, you know, I can make six figures. But once I started so you, adding, you've really, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Once I started adding those rentals and eliminating costs, growth is exponential as soon as you add in the things that don't come from W-2 income. Appreciation and principal pay down is where wealth comes from. Yeah. So say that again. You said you didn't have how much in the bank before you were 40? I don't think before I turned 40, I had ever had $1,000 in the bank. And then between, and from 40 is when I had, I was divorced with $89,000 in bad debt to 48 is when my net worth hit a million. Wow. So in eight years, you had about a $1.1 million swing. Correct. If you were 90 in the red and then you got up to a million. Wow. That's amazing. So you did it all in eight years and now I, you continue I to build it. Yep. I Sorry to cut you off. I try to share it with as many people as possible. The, the power of house hacking is <clears throat> it's on several levels. Your income starts to not be taxed because W-2 is the highest taxed individual out there. And appreciation happens whether you're awake or asleep. And principal pay down happens every single month. And sometimes when I explain my strategy to people, their first re knee jerk reaction is you have over a million dollars in debt. I would never want to have that because people don't understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. And I'm not saying go out and get in debt up to your eyes and be over leveraged, but the right structure, the right diversified portfolio that uses debt can create wealth extremely fast. So just high level, Dion, I know we talked about the 80, what was it? 83,000, right? In, in net cash flow. What is your, your top line of your gross potential rent is how much and, and what are your payments on that that leaves you with the 83? I guess how levered are you is the question. So originally I was trying to stay at four mortgages. 
I figured that that large lending, lending lending institutions like Bank of America, Wells Fargo, have a mountain of data, so they know that they they limit people to four mortgages, so that must be the safe number. Other mortgage lenders like Fairway Mortgage, Guild Mortgage, they'll take you up to ten. You know, credit unions, local banks, and so I got up to four mortgages and then paid one off. But that math doesn't really work when interest rates drop to as low as they are right now. Right now, borrowing at three percent interest on a thirty-year loan. The return that you can get being over 10% makes that free money. I'm going to go up to 10 mortgages as long as I can maintain 70% or less leverage. I don't want to go above 70%. I want to maintain 30% in equity just in case there's a prolonged government shutdown or another pandemic or a stock market crash. And my portfolio, in my mind, is more diversified than a stock portfolio can be, even if it's an index fund. My properties are more than 10 miles apart. Each one's close to more than two economic drivers. I keep my tenant base diverse. I've got about a third military, a third Section 8, a third retired. So no matter what catastrophe happens, I won't be impacted more than 30% of my cash flow. So I would, you know, even this year with COVID, I've I've had no late or missing payments. I offer, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, and how much in cash do you hold in case people were to not pay or you had some vacancy? Yeah, I don't know if it's a lot. When I had seven units or less, I kept $10,000. I figured that would replace a roof, that would replace a water heater, that would maintain me for you know five to six months if there was no rent coming in at all. Now at 14 units, well, I, I was at 11 units and I had $30,000 in the reserve account. At 14, I'm thinking about stepping that up to 40000 Anything above that amount needs to be put to work to make me more money. So, you know, I have probably a little over $100,000 right now. I'm, I'm looking for the next deal. Even though I'm saving every month, I'm looking for that next thing because- sure. If you're not looking every day, you won't recognize a great deal when it comes when you're ready. Just because you don't have the cash right now. For instance, I have the GI Bill available. I've never, or not GI Bill, the VA loan available. And I've, I'm not using it because I'm able to save the down payment. If the best deal in the world pops up and I just have to get it, but I don't have the money to put down, I've got the VA loan as, a, as an alternate, like reserve to get a property with no money down and avoid uh, PMI and get a better interest rate. So I have a few strategies to to go depending on how things go in the future. Yeah. And, and when you travel, I just want to come back. You mentioned you travel to Cambodia or Thailand for a month or so. Who manages these properties? I, I assume you still do, but you just have boots on the ground or somebody you could call if there was an issue. So, I mean, the, the thing that works for me is being really lazy. And I like to self-manage, but not actually do anything. I have two handymen that I keep on basically like retainer and can call anytime. And... They do the work. I, I, I love the Thumbtack app. Uh, it's an app called Thumbtack, and it's a way to find contractors, get quotes, um, read reviews. And so I've done a couple of roofs. I've had some tree work done, and I use Thumbtack to get all of that really quick. None of that's ever happened with me leaving the house. So whether I'm in Thailand, Colombia, Las Vegas, or here in Washington, um, I want the texts to come to me. I want the emails to come to me. And I, I keep track of this. In 2019, I spent just under 20 hours managing all of my units. A property manager would have cost me about $18,000. And so I figure that's about $900 an hour for me to manage it myself. Even though managing it myself is taking a Hmm. phone or an email or a text. And this is when you had 11 units or 14? 11. So 14 just now happened. I closed two two weeks ago. That's like less than two hours managing each property two hours a year. Yeah. And some of them, it's one phone call a year. <laughs> and some of them, 
uh, it's three calls a month. And that's the, the one tenant that you, you hope moves out eventually. Wow. Wow. Well, Dion, this has been fun. I mean, I like your passion for financial freedom, for financial independence. So just in, in closing here, I know you've shared a ton of advice. Are there any mistakes you've made that you regret or any, I guess, final words of advice that you would point to if somebody wants to get in the same situation as you and replace their income here and, and get on a road to financial independence? Yeah, no. It, so the best advice I would have would be from from my mistakes is when I first started out, I didn't treat it like a business. You know, renting to somebody with a handshake, that's no business would do that. Um, no successful business would do that for very long. So my advice would be, you are going to be alive in five years. Start living like it. Figure out how to increase your income, decrease your expenses. Find a path to invest that difference that's going to grow you more money than you can make by working. Do the research. Some people are playing Fortnite. Some people are playing golf. Some people are traveling. But how many people are taking the time because we have to shower? You have to, you don't have to, but a lot of us work out. You mow the lawn. You have to drive to wherever you're going. That's all time you can be listening to somebody who's accomplished something like financial freedom because being addicted to and playing Fortnite and being really good at it or World of Warcraft is, is, is a skill you can be proud of, but it's never going to make you that financial freedom unless you figure out that you can stream it. You can have people watch your channel. You can put videos on YouTube and create a passive income stream out of that that thing that you enjoy that you turn into money. That would be my advice is, is take the time to learn with all the ways that there are to learn right now with, with YouTube and podcasts and audiobooks. People that listen to music on their commute are literally losing minutes every day that they could be learning a simple skill that they could turn into something that makes money. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dion. I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you sharing your advice and, and love your passion again for financial independence. It's fun to hear your story and, and amazing, right? I mean, you turned it around from negative 90 in the red to over net worth of over a million in, in under 10 years. So amazing, amazing story. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing it again, everybody. That's Dion, net worth of 1.25 million. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dion. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.